Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our videocast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. This lesson will describe the relationship between cardiac output and venous return, with special emphasis placed on factors pertinent to operating room anesthesia. The concepts herein are partially based on a summary compiled by Dr. Keith Baker, MD-PhD, as published in the ASA Refresher Course in Anesthesiology. Let us begin with a few definitions. The term cardiac output refers to the quantity of blood that crosses the aortic valve from the left ventricle per unit time. Common units for the cardiac output are liters of blood per minute, and an average 70 kilogram male at rest should have a cardiac output on the order of 5 liters per minute. For reference, the approximate blood volume of such a patient is 5 liters. The term venous return refers to the quantity of blood that crosses from the vena cava into the right atrium per unit time, also measured in liters of blood per minute. The term normal physiology shall refer to a situation in which the left ventricle provides adequate pumping power to prevent an increase in pressure in the pulmonary vasculature. In the pathological state, Inadequate left ventricular pump function leads to increasing pulmonary vascular volume, increasing pulmonary vascular pressure, and pulmonary edema or congestive heart failure. All pressures discussed will be gauge pressure, with zero pressure meaning ambient pressure. Finally, the term inotropy refers to the rate of change of pressure per unit time in the contractile chambers of the heart. Since the pressure gradient from the left ventricle to the aorta is what drives cardiac output flow, the faster the left ventricle achieves a positive pressure gradient, the greater the amount of blood that can be ejected from the left ventricle. The result is that, as inotropy increases, the ventricle will achieve a greater degree of emptying and thus a smaller end systolic volume. Early attempts to understand cardiac output postulated a rigid pipe model of circulation. In this model, the blood vessels of the body were passive, rigid conduits for blood. The left ventricle pumped blood into the arterial side of the circulation. As blood is essentially incompressible, the pumped volume drove flow through the vasculature, displacing an equal quantity into the venous side. This, then, drove venous blood into the right heart to be pumped again. Although conveniently simple, this model was proven experimentally to be incorrect. First, cardiac pacing studies showed that within wide ranges, the heart rate can be varied without changing the cardiac output significantly. This is at odds with a rigid pipe model, which demands that pump rate will determine output rate. In human subjects, paced rates between 60 and 160 beats per minute barely changed the measured cardiac output. Second, studies were performed using cardiac pacers to increase inotropy. This was achieved by delivering a pacing spike immediately following the resolution of the refractory period. Transitioning between normal and high inotropic states showed minimal effect on cardiac output. 
Effective modeling of the cardiovascular system requires several features. This includes a low-pressure, compliant vasculature with regions capable of acting as reservoirs, variable resistance regions capable of modulating the flow of blood out of the capacitance regions, and elastic regions of the venous side leading back to the heart, which are capable of altering their compliance and thus the pressure within. Furthermore, the elastic venous sections must be collapsible and must collapse as right atrial pressure reaches zero. The implications of such a system accurately model cardiac circulation. Under normal physiology, the right ventricle moves blood into the pulmonary circulation, resulting in a low right ventricular cavity pressure during diastole. This allows the higher pressure blood in the right atrium to flow into the ventricle. In turn, this lowers the pressure in the right atrium, establishing a pressure gradient and flow from the vena cava. This flow is the venous return. Now, the lowered pressure in the vena cava allows flow from more distant veins. With collapsible veins on the return side, no matter how aggressively the heart empties during systole, it is incapable of sucking additional blood from the vena cava into the right atrium to increase output. Once right atrial diastolic pressure approaches zero, the great veins collapse and no increase in venous return will result. At this point, the pressure gradient driving venous return is controlled entirely by venous pressure. This pressure is regulated both by the resistance to flow from the arterial to venous system and by the prevailing level of venoconstriction. The result of this arrangement is that, with normal physiology, cardiac output is solely determined by venous return. To reiterate, the sole determinant of cardiac output is venous return. Before addressing the implications of this arrangement, let us engage in a few thought experiments to understand this concept better. Remember that normal physiology is a prerequisite. If left ventricular filling is limited by restrictive ventricular compliance, for example, due to distension or pediatric physiology, then a different model with different implications is needed. We will employ the Goldilocks analytical procedure to examine three possible scenarios. Venous return is less than cardiac output, venous return is greater than cardiac output, and venous return is equal to cardiac output. Taking the first, what would the implications be if venous return were, say, 4.9 liters per minute and cardiac output were 5.0 liters per minute? Since the heart cannot create blood de novo, it would be an impossibility for it to pump more blood than returns to it. Perhaps a heartbeat or two might eject some extra bit of blood from the pulmonary circulation, but any excess would be depleted rapidly. As such, a scenario in which the heart pumped more blood than it received cannot be sustained. Cardiac output would promptly decrease to 4.9 liters per minute at steady state thus equaling venous return. The second case is more complicated. Suppose a venous return of 5.1 liters per minute and a cardiac output of 5.0 liters per minute. Every minute, 100 milliliters of blood arrives at the heart but does not leave. Obviously, this situation cannot continue for more than 50 minutes since that would imply the entire 5 liter blood volume of our reference patient now resides in the heart and pulmonary vasculature. In fact, 
one of two possible outcomes occurs in this scenario. By definition, the excess blood cannot proceed further than the left ventricle since it would then become cardiac output. Blood accumulating in the left ventricle will stretch the myocardium, yielding a taut, less compliant muscle. The result will be an increased diastolic pressure in the left ventricle. In turn, we find a lower diastolic pressure gradient between the left atrium and ventricle and less flow into the ventricle. Following that, the left atrial pressure will rise, decreasing flow into it and raising the pulmonary venous and pulmonary arterial pressures. Further accumulation of blood in the pulmonary vasculature leads to increasing right heart pressures and lower gradients back to the great veins. In short, the physiology is that of heart failure, pulmonary congestion, and pulmonary edema. We know that patients can remain in heart failure for far longer than 50 minutes, so we seem to have arrived at an impasse. The ultimate implication of this knock-on effect, though, is to diminish the pressure gradient between the great veins and the right atrium. When this happens, flow, i.e. venous return, decreases. As a new equilibrium is reached at higher pressures in the heart and lungs, the venous return must either decrease sufficiently to match the cardiac output, or so much blood will have accumulated that the physiology is no longer compatible with life and the patient will die. Finally, when venous return equals cardiac output, the system is stable, since both previous cases naturally return to the equilibrium state or result in death. There is only one logical conclusion, namely, cardiac output must always equal venous return. It might seem that quite a bit of measuring must be done to ensure such equality, but two simple features of the myocardium can, in fact, yield this balanced system. First, the myocardium must have a low compliance across a range of filling volumes. In this way, beat-to-beat -beat changes in filling can be accommodated by the cardiac muscle without transmitting increased pressures to the pulmonary vasculature. Experimental data show that the ventricles remain compliant over a range of filling volumes. Also, the myocardium must vary its inotropy with each systole to match changes in filling volumes. This volume-to-inotropic link is known as the Frank-Starling mechanism. As the myofibrils are increasingly stretched in diastole, the definition of increasing preload, both the overlap of thick and thin filaments in the sarcomere move towards optimal alignment, and there is an increase in systolic intracellular calcium release, ultimately yielding stronger actin and myosin interactions. The upshot is that, as end diastolic volume increases, the ventricle will eject more blood during systole, returning the ventricle to its normal end systolic volume despite beat-to-beat -beat variability in ventricular filling. As long as the heart continues to operate in this self-regulating domain, venous return will determine and be equal to cardiac output. However, in the case of heart failure or pediatric physiology, the left ventricle is seen to fill beyond the low compliance range. In that case, an attempt to increase venous return leads to an increase in cardiac filling pressures, decreasing pressure gradients, and minimal change in flow. Failing hearts often benefit from increases in inotropy, which help return the ventricle to a low compliance diastolic state, thus decreasing pressures throughout.
pediatric hearts can increase output simply by increasing heart rate, since each systole is already ejecting a maximum amount of blood. More systoles means more output in children. As a practical matter, there are many maneuvers that can be performed in the operating room to increase cardiac output in normal physiology. All, obviously, require increasing venous return. For example, one could increase pressure in the great veins by expanding the intravascular volume. For a given state of venoconstriction, more blood volume means more pressure in the elastic veins. IV fluids of all types will achieve this result, though the durability of any intervention depends on the particular fluid chosen. One could increase the hydrostatic pressure in the body by, say, raising the legs or exsanguinating a limb prior to tourniquet application. Driving more volume centrally will increase volume in the vena cava. Maintaining blood volume but increasing venoconstriction would also achieve similar increases in flow. Phenylephrine, for example, will constrict the veins and lead to greater pressure gradients between the vena cava and right atrium, driving flow into the heart. Note that the body is a complex system, and there are several autoregulatory pathways that impinge upon venous return. These include changes in capacitance and resistance of segments in the circulatory system. Any given iatrogenic intervention may be mitigated by reflexive changes in other parts of the circulatory system. This summary was designed to give you a more intuitive understanding of the working parameters of the cardiovascular system. Cardiac output is an essential component of blood pressure, which requires both flow and resistance to flow. Blood pressure helps determine perfusion of, and thus oxygen delivery to, tissue. As anesthesiologists, it is critical that we support and maintain adequate tissue perfusion in our patients. Understanding the effects of venous return on cardiac output allows us to optimize physiology when appropriate. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well, on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.